This is a 980 CKNW podcast. My mantra these days, these past few weeks, in fact, has been a few words from the poem If by Rudyard Kipling. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. But fortunately for you, the Sunday Night Health Show is not about me. It's about you. It's the show where we educate everyone about health, including sexual health, how it relates to overall health, making your relationships the best they can be. Good evening. I am Maureen McGrath, a registered nurse, a sexual health educator, author of the book Sex and Health, a blogger at Fifty Shades of Pink, clinician, TEDx speaker, and your resource to help start that conversation, answer your questions, and help you live life to the fullest. I have a passion for up-to-date health information to guide you so that you may live the life to the best possible way you can, in the best possible way you can. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show. This is a show about health, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, relational, and yes, 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 even sexual health, which is really important. I'll be uncovering what lies beneath the sheets tonight, so please put the kitties to bed, as listener discretion is advised. As I said, we're going under the covers. Andrew, how are you? I'm doing okay. How about you? I'm fine, thank you. Yes. You've been very busy, haven't you? (laughs) Busy girl, yeah. Well, I mean, that's a good thing. I like busy. It's okay. But busy can be an addiction. Busy can be an addiction. You have to be careful not to overdo yourself. That's right. uh, But that's when you're working a tremendous amount. You know, that sort of busyness, like, oh, I can't go because I'm working. That's not me. I'm like, yeah, sure, I'm there. (laughs) I'm not working. I'm going to go wherever. Traveling a bit, yes. (laughs) Anyway, so uh, back in town now. Here I am. Welcome back. (laughs) Right back to the mic. My pleasure to be here. Um, I, uh, if anyone out there wants to give me a call and uh, ask me any questions at all, the lines are open. Is that right, Andrew? The lines are, well... Perfect. The lines are... Now they are. Open now. Okay. <laughs> and the number to call is one 399 That's one 399 You can always email me at nursetalk at hotmail.com and I will be answering some of your emails tonight. Tonight on the program, we have lots of different subjects that are related to mental health and relationship health and and other things. So uh, did you know that 300 million people worldwide suffer from depression? Maybe. But did you know that people with depression have their own language? Me, myself, and I are going to be talking to you about that tonight. Also, depression can be an extremely challenging condition, not only for the patient or the person who is suffering with depression. It also may come with anxiety and other common mental illness. But also, this can be an extremely challenging condition for the patient's physician and or partner, husband, wife, children. Well, I'm happy to report that there's a paradigm shift in what doctors are prescribing these days. You might think that's all they prescribe are pills. And you know what? Quite frankly, that's often what you get. But uh, as I said, the tide is turning, and I'm going to be telling you a little bit about that tonight as well. Keeping on the language theme, you might meet a great woman that you feel you click with, but it goes nowhere. Ever think you might be saying the wrong thing? It's called insight. You don't have any? Well, I have a couple of tips for you. Five things you should never say to a woman under the covers, <laughs> keeping it uh, a little above uh, above the line here, but making sure you're getting the kitties to bed. Grab your glass of wine, your lover, come and enjoy the program with me. 
There's a whole lot of pressure in this world for people to get married. Marriage is such a common word. People are either getting married, they were married, they're never getting married, they're getting married again, they wish they never got married. Well, there are a whole lot of people that used to succumb to that pressure, but it looks like there's a whole lot more single people for the first time ever, more people are single than are married. Clutch your pearls. Well, no, this could be a good thing, and I'm going to tell you why. Talk about clutching your pearls. This one warrants a collective gasp. Couple with Couples with a great sex life are more likely to experience infidelity. Well, I declare on that one. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that, too. I see a lot of patients in my clinical practice, and they come in, and I have to say, you know, I don't really like to judge, you know, and you don't want to, but sometimes you can't help it. And I, I have to say I'm guilty of this. And we got nothing to be guilty of. Anyway, <laughs> I digress. Um, you know, people come in, and they I see a lot of patients in my clinical practice who may have experienced, amongst many other things, but have experienced infidelity in their relationship, and, and they'll say, we were having great sex. We were having sex. You know, we, we were not in a sexless marriage. And, uh, and I've often sort of thought, hmm, you know, well, what does having sex mean? How many times? How good, really? But you know what? There's some new research out that explains some of that, so I'm quite happy to uh, be talking to you about that tonight. I, As you may or may not know, I actually have a clinical practice, I, and I also see uh, patients virtually as well, patients around the globe, quite frankly, um, who I utilize a program called VC. It's uh, HIPAA-compliant for privacy, and, and so I use that program. It's a free download. And um, even, you know, patients will often email me and say, do you know anyone in Indiana <laughs> that you can refer me to? And I, I really don't. You know, Indiana is sort of off the radar for me. <laughs> but, uh, or Maryland. <laughs> or, but so then, you know, I tell them that I offer, offer this. But, um, and so it's interesting because a lot of the problems, it doesn't matter. You know, geography doesn't actually uh, mean somebody may not experience these problems around their relationship. So, um, but many of these patients, whether they're in my clinical practice or whether they are um, virtual patients of mine, they're at a standstill in their relationship. And oftentimes, one part of the couple has a particular personality. Well, you know what? Often that, you know, two people, they will have two different personalities. One can be the more easygoing one. One can be the more fiery one. One can be the type A. The other can be the type D, type B, or, or type E, all sorts of um, everything to everybody, uh, different personalities. But there's one particular personality that is not only detrimental in an intimate relationship, but it can also be very problematic in other relationships, including your professional relationship. So stay tuned to find out if you are with this particular type of person. And this particular type of person is really challenging because uh, you would you may not think that... Um, a person that had this certain traits had felt a certain way about themselves on the inside. So I'm going to clarify some of that for you tonight. Did I say egomaniac? Anyway, as you know, I do a lot of work for women who are experiencing menopause, perimenopause, that time of life, uh, that natural time of life, a time of transition, a time of change, a time when you're ready to take someone else's head off. Uh, Maybe you're experiencing heart palpitations as well, hot flashes, night sweats, um, vaginal health issues as well. 
I um I was at uh, this week I was uh invited to host <laughs> or be a guest, I guess, not host. Although I did bring the wine and the appies. But anyway, I digress. Um, I had actually given, uh, I do- donated my services to the Pacific Autism Society. And so uh, some ladies had purchased this and, and won this. And so I went out to the Netherlands and um, <laughs> delivered this education um, for uh, the Surrey Beavers. So I want to give a little shout out to the Surrey Beavers who have been playing soccer together for 30 years, which is, you know, really great friends, uh, the the women who attended this, this passion party. And, um, you know, it's really important because social integration is associated with longevity. Uh, it was a great crew, great group of women. Uh, we had an absolute blast. And, you know, so many women had so many questions about this time of life. But I was happy to see that there is uh, some new research that testosterone, which is typically associated with men, and really there hasn't been too much evidence to support that testosterone would, in fact, increase women's sexual desire, for example. Um, but there is some hope for um, women's uh, painful sex that they may experience during the menopause. So I'm going to be talking about that tonight as well. There's also been some controversy in this country about sex education and how it may be distracting some kids from their multiplication tables. <laughs> we are so far past that, let me tell you. Uh, you know, what we really need is online porn literacy for our children because, I mean, there's, if there are parents that are out there that are uncomfortable, first of all, you're doing a terrible job <laughs> in general educating your children about sex and sexuality and expression of sexuality and fluidity around sexuality and and sex ed it, it delivered pr- appropriately and properly and in truth uh, can only help your children but you know we are so far past that given online porn and what our children need uh, and our teenagers in particular they need literacy around online porn. So I'm going to be talking to you about a few programs that are out there that um, what perhaps Canada needs to do is to take a page out of out of their book about online um, porn and how to actually educate in truth about this for our children because our children are looking at this, and um, but most parents don't believe it, and that's according to uh, research studies. So I also have some great emails from you, and I love getting your emails because it helps me to learn about what you need to learn about. And also, you are likely not the only person having these problems. And so um, I will be reading some emails to you tonight. But if you want to give me a call, the number to call is one 877 9898 or email me at nursetalk at com. I am Maureen McGrath, and you are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. It's my pleasure to be here with you Tonight live, as it is every Sunday night, uh, there's the love language, but uh, you're all familiar with that. But did you know that people who experience depression use language differently as well? This according to a study published in the Clinical Psychological Science. I see patients in my clinical practice who come to me with troubles in life And sometimes I can see I'm not a physician. I'm a registered nurse. I I have been uh, qualified for um, delivering particular validated questionnaires for depression, like the Beck Depression Inventory or the BDI, uh, which uh, 
is scored, and depending on the score, it's a marker for depression, so I may send a patient off to see their uh, doctor uh, to talk about um, you know, what's going on in their life and as well send the results of the BDI. There's also another questionnaire, like a patient health questionnaire called the PHQ-9. And this is an easy-to-use patient questionnaire. It's actually self-administered. It's not a screening tool for depression, but it is used to monitor the severity of depression and the response to treatment, which I often have to do as well because people will present to my clinical practice Uh, having been prescribed antidepressants, and they may or may not be working. So the dose may not be enough. They may not be adding on the talk therapy, which you need. They may not be adding on. They may may, may not be dealing with the biopsychosocial aspects of their depression. They may not be exercising. Exercise is is part of the depression guidelines now in Canada. Um, But this particular... um, This particular tool, this diagnostic instrument is common for... uh, for, is used commonly um, for many common mental disorders. And, and so it's oftentimes it can be used to make a tentative diagnosis of depression for at-risk populations like people with coronary artery disease or after a stroke, for example. So there's many different uses and many different times you want to apply this, this type of, of thing. So I see a lot of patients, and, and quite often when patients or people are having problems in their relationship and they have depression, you really have to treat the depression before you can actually resolve the conflict in the relationship. So that's an important aspect of treatment. And and really, it's the, a lot of the education that I do. So I was very interested to see, uh, according to this study published in Clinical Psychological Science, that there has been a class of words that has been unveiled that can help accurately predict whether someone is suffering de- from depression. Because I really need to know that in my clinical practice when I see patients or a couple that comes in and they're struggling with something and one part of the couple is not feeling well because depression is a physical illness. Uh, so they may be having uh, abdominal pain. They may feel poorly all over. They may be having sleep problems, interrupted sleep problems. They may be uh, experiencing anger. And so anger is a common depressive symptom, especially in men. So they may be having, and so that's contributing to the problems in the relationship. And so when somebody is actually ill, a partner may be taking it personally or, you know, upset that their partner is yelling at them needlessly, unnecessarily, or over the smallest things. Um, they they may be unmotivated people with depression. They may be extremely fatigued. So there are a number of symptoms. And sometimes I can see this or just based on what the, the partner says, because it's really the partner who is the best describer of this situation of living with somebody who may be experiencing depression. They may not know they may not be able to, and they will not be able to diagnose the depression unless, of course, they are a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a physician, but they will be able to see the symptoms or the pattern of behavior that their partner is experiencing. That, experiencing. So I see this pretty commonly. And, um, and so I am always looking for another tool that, that I can utilize in my clinical practice to help uh, diagnose uh, depression or help doctors to diagnose d- depression. And so this research was done using technology, which was very interesting as well, because it, technology allows for the processing of large data banks in, in a few 
seconds or in a few minutes. And it can help spot linguistic features that humans might miss. And so it calculates the prevalence, the percentage of or the prevalence of words and classes of words, the lexical diversity, average sentence length, grammatical parents, patterns, and other metrics as well. But one of the most interesting things that I think came out of this was the... Um, the content and the style, that the language, uh, as we know, can be separated into two components. We have content and we have style. Um, and so it's not going to surprise you at all that people who have uh, depression may have more negative emotions. Okay, we get that. They may not see the, that the future is bright. They may use a lot of negative adjectives and adverbs like they're sad or they're lonely or they're upset or they're unmotivated. They don't feel well. They're miserable. They're angry. Uh, so they use a lot of those negative emotions. And, and that can be hard as well because, you know, it's really good to be around people who are are light and are happy and are positive. But when people are suffering with depression, that's very difficult. And it can be a situational depression. So it can be something that has happened. Um, it's not grief necessarily, but you know, grief, if it goes on too long and it's not processed properly, it can lead to a depression. Uh, people who often uh, self-medicate with depression. Um, so there's many different aspects, but it can be a generalized depression um, or something untreated. But I'm going to come go to break right now, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to tell you the what words they are using when they are depressed. I am Maureen McGrath, and you are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Thank you so much for being here. With me this evening, we are talking right now about depression. It's a very challenging issue. 300 million people around the world have been diagnosed with depression at any given time. And there's some new research published in Clinical Psychological Science, which talks about the language of depressed people. And as I was saying before the break, language can be separated into two components, content and style. And so the content is really what we express, the meaning or the subject matter of what we're talking about. And and so from this study, it was found, and it won't, won't surprise you, that people with depression use an excessive amount of words that convey negative emotions. So negative adjectives and adverbs like like they're lonely, they're miserable, they're upset, they're sad. Uh, but more interesting than that, I believe, was the use of pronouns. Those with symptoms of depression use, according to this research study, use significantly more first-person singular pronouns, such as me, myself, and I. And I see this in my clinical practice with people, and it's often, they, they can't get outside of themselves. And you might notice that if you live with somebody with depression, because uh, insight is also often lacking in people with depression because it's such a challenging um, medical illness. Um, these people with depression, according to this research study, used significantly fewer second and third person pronouns such as they and them or she. Uh, this pattern of pronoun use suggests that people with depression are more focused on themselves. 
and less connected with others, which is not a good thing necessarily. But this uh, use of pronouns is actually more reliable in identifying depression than those negative emotion words. I guess you could just have a Debbie Downer in your life, but these this use of pronouns. So that's something to be mindful of, to be aware of when you are dealing with somebody or living with somebody who is experiencing depression, because this medical illness can be, it, it can be devastating for people that are living with it, of course, but it can be almost as devastating or very challenging for those people who love that person with depression, who live with that person with depression, and so, or, or who work with that person who is experiencing depression. It can be very difficult, and that's why treatment is so important. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about some new uh, ways to deliver treatments, which I'm really happy about. I'm all about conservative measures myself uh, in my clinical practice because I'm a nurse and because I focus a lot on education and the research and the science behind it. Um, we also know that rumination, and that means dwelling on something, you know, can't re- repeated thoughts about the same thing or dwelling on somebody's personal problems, if you will. And social isolation also. So you, you often hear people say, I, I just want to go live in the woods by myself, you know, which is unrealistic, especially if they've got four or five children that they've brought into this world, helped to bring into the world, hopefully. Um, but the social is- isolation is also a common feature of depression. They, they feel so miserable that they don't want to be around people or they, they may have some idea that this is hard on other other people or they can't take the pressure. They often hear them saying that as well. Um, But, you know, the question is, does depression cause people to focus on themselves or do people who focus on themselves get symptoms of depression? We don't know, but it's certainly something to consider. I also want to talk about the style of language, which I thought was very interesting in this particular research. And the style of language relates to how we express ourselves, how we tell a story, basically. It's, it's not the content, but it's the, it's the way we deliver what we're going to say to you. And there, there are people who are sort of all or nothing thinkers or they're black and white, you know, the world is this way, like, or the, or the world is that way. Um, so the lab in this particular research study conducted a big data text analysis of 64 different online mental health forums, which included over 6,400 members. And what they found was something called absolutist words. Those convey absolute magnitudes or probabilities such as always, nothing, completely. Like like people will say, this never works out. This is never going to work out for me. And you think, well, no, it actually might work out for you. Um, these are actually... Uh, found to be better markers for mental health forums than either pronouns or negative emotion words. So, you know, the thing about this research is that it confirms that we know that people who are have depression, um, ex, you know, have negative uh, words, basically, that they use that they to, to describe how they feel, that they feel sad, they feel unmotivated, they feel down. Um, but And so you would think that that would be the number one marker, but it's not necessarily. It's these absolutist words, which also play a role in depression in addition to the pronouns. Um, and, and we know that people with depression have that black and white view of the world, or they have a tendency to have a bit more of a black and white view of the world, and this manifests in their 
style of language. So how they talk about their problems, how they talk about their issues, how they talk about how they see the world. The prevalence of absolutist words is approximately 50% greater in the anxiety and depression forums and 80% greater for the suicidal ideation forums. So these are really important uh, aspects of the diagnosis and, and the ability to help people with this illness or for physicians to treat people. There's, uh, there were similar distribution patterns um, between the pronouns and the absolutist words across the forums, but the effect was smaller according to this research. So the, the research also included recovery forums where uh, members who feel they had recovered from a depressive episode, they wrote positive and encouraging posts about their recovery, so in a, likely in an effort to help other people because I find a lot of people who've experienced depression do want to share that and they do want to help others like this worked for me or that worked for me, and so they will share that. So they did review the posts on these forums, and they found that the negative emotion words were used at comparable levels to control forums while positive emotion words were elevated by approximately 70% after the person was treated appropriately for depression. But the prevalence of the absolutist words, so that sort of all or nothing thinking, that never going to work out, this is always bad, this is completely wrong, those types of words, they were uh, elevated. Um, that The prevalence of the absolutist words were remained significantly greater than that of the controls but they were slightly lower than in anxiety and depression forums. So it's important to note that those who have previously had depressive symptoms are more likely to have them again. And so there's a greater tendency for absolutist thinking, even when there are no symptoms of depression. And so that is a sign that it may play a role in causing depressive ep- episodes. So if people have this attitude about life, this attitude about relationships, this attitude about jobs, they, this may actually be uh, a bit of a cause for depression, one of the causes. We know that there's a biopsychosocial history for people who have depression. Oftentimes there's something that has happened to them in their childhood. They may have experienced trauma. They may have watched their mother uh, take pills, you know, to deal with any issue. Um, They may have experienced poverty. Uh, They may have had situations in their family that cause anxiety. Um, So we know that. But there are some other things that people uh, live to or the way they express. So who would have thought that their language, um, that there is a language of people with depression? And sometimes I think they know this as well. At least the patients in my clinical practice will know that they are negative, will know that they are ornery. They can't help it. They will know that they have this sort of all or nothing thinking or this black and, and white thinking. Um, so it's something to be uh, to consider, uh, to consider that for yourself. If you are living with depression, um, it is, you know, something to be mindful of perhaps. Um, and, and also know that of course you can use a language associated with depression, even when you're not currently depressed. Ultimately it's how you feel over time that determines whether you are suffering. It's so it's really about your symptoms, um, 
of depression, how you're feeling, how you're engaging in the world, how successful you are in your relationships, in your ability to complete projects, in your ability to be on time, in your ability to not lash out, your ability to, you know, accept what is. Sometimes you just have to say, it is what it is, and and go with it. Um, if you're sleeping well, that's also a, a good sign that your uh, depression, depressive symptoms may are managed properly, or you're eating properly, or you're not losing weight or gaining weight. Sometimes you can gain weight from from the medication. So. Um, these are important tools to help uh, to improve health and prevent uh, tragic suicides. We see some of these, you know, we've seen them throughout history. Sylvia Plath, a, a poet who wrote um, very dark um, poetry and, you know, Kurt Cobain is another one, some of his lyrics as well. So we have lots of artists who have suffered in this way. Um, Robin Williams, uh, you know, there's uh, too many to name. Uh, for this, but the good news is, and I'm going to talk about this when I come back. What are doctors prescribing now instead of pills? I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. If you want to email me, feel free. Nurse Talk at hotmail dot com. You can also call me one eight seven seven. Three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. Our lines are open. I got a little email here, Andrew. Uh, it said, "Dear Maureen, I've got my wine and my robe on, and I am here to listen to one of my favorite radio shows. I suffer from depression and anxiety, so thank you for talking about it, John. Thanks, John. I uh, that's a visual. <laughs> the wine and the robe." <laughs> Um, imagination is key in sexual health. Anyhow, I digress. Uh, thanks for all your emails. I really appreciate them. And I'm going to get to some of them in a little bit. Uh, but now we're talking about depression, the most common psychiatric disorder. And it is thought to affect about 300 million people worth worldwide. It's a global challenge and it contributes significantly to the global burden of human disease. This is something that we really need to pay attention to. And I'm very happy that the tides are turning on this one. And uh, you would think when you go to a doctor, and part of when you part of the uh, when you go to a physician, your GP, you know, they quite often will have ten minutes. They've allotted ten minutes. You can bring in one problem. Well, with depression. You can have 27 problems with depression between the aches and the pains and the and the thoughts that are going on, the rumination, the problems in your relationship, the job loss. I mean, there's so many problems you need to make like 2,700 appointments. So um, and, you know, because doctors are limited in their time, they might reach for the prescription pad really quickly and they may. Uh, and you may want the quick fix. Just give me the pill, doc. You know what that's like. I, I hear that so often. You have a little problem? Give me a little pill. I want it to be fixed. But that's not often the fix. And doctors are realizing that. And part of the guidelines around treatment of mild to moderate depression is exercise. Of course, you have to put that in context. Take context. Take into consideration family history, the size of the person, the cardiovascular disease, their current style, lifestyle and diet and, and all of that. You don't want to you know, have somebody who has been sedentary for three months get up and go mountain biking. You know, that's just, you know, that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. 
so I, I'm glad to see that uh, even though patients are expecting a pill as well or an ointment and, and doctors, you know, they have those prescription pads handy on their desk and there's a, a lot of evidence to support that doctors and dentists in particular have contributed to the fentanyl crisis because they prescribe OxyContin for anything. I had a 25-year-old patient in the federal correction system uh, who had been a heroin addict for seven or eight years. He had had surgery as a teenager. He was given like 400 OxyContin tablets, took them all, and then just went off cold turkey. And his girlfriend made the great suggestion, said, well, heroin, his doctor wouldn't give him any more. Oh, thanks, doc. Um, and it wouldn't give him any more. There wasn't a proper withdrawal for him. Uh, withdrawal management from opiates, and his girlfriend made the brilliant suggestion that he try heroin because she said it works just as well. <laughs> He's a heroin addict now, and he is working, but he ends up in the system every now and again. His family doesn't know. He comes from a very good family, and his family has no idea that their son that they adore is a heroin addict as a result of orthopedic surgery and a doctor who gave him an inordinate amount of pills of oxycodone. Okay, so now what are doctors doing? So I think doctors are getting fed up with this, perhaps, hopefully. Um, But I bet you don't think that if you go to the doctor, that the doctor is going to prescribe or refer you, not to a specialist, not to a surgeon, but to a gym or a volunteering scheme. And you can tell from my last segment on the language of depression that it's good uh, for people to get outside of themselves to because they have this language of me, myself, and I. Is there anyone else in this room of 400? Um, and so volunteering, do so, doing something for somebody else will be helpful. I remember even my mother saying that when I was a kid. She'd be like, go and go and do something for somebody else if you're feeling, you know, upset or you're, you're miserable. And it does take you out of yourself. More and more doctors are dishing out these social prescriptions, what I call social prescriptions. And a lot of them think, and I, and I happen to agree with this, that this can actually relieve some of the pressure, some of the lineups to get into a GP. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't have a GP in this province, but one thing about that that's rarely mentioned is that according to the research about this, a lot of people haven't even looked for a GP. So they include them in, in the research, okay? So, um, <laughs> so that's not really true uh, true to form or true to the to the situation, but there. That said, there still are um, lineups in the emergency department. There are lineups in doctors' offices, and doctors' time can be better spent, um, especially if we're because there are side effects from um, medications there that people can experience. Uh, some of the medications may or may not work, um, and. Uh, so the you know medications are not necessarily the way to go but that's the that's the problem. Um so if doctors refer you to non-medical treatments I think this is a good thing because uh it, you know some people might be offended if a doctor um refers them to a non-medical treatment especially if you've got depression and the doctor says listen um you know why 
um, you know, why don't you go for a walk every day? 30 minutes of walking is as good for mild to moderate depression as any antidepressant. So you might be upset if you think that's all the doctor told me to do is to go walk. You know, what you want to do for the exercise so that you sleep properly, because those are tied as well, is you want to do um, 30 minutes of exercise five to six times a week where your heart rate is above 120 beats per minute. So, um, you know, when you go to the doctor, ask your doctor for a social prescribing theme or scheme. Um, Ask for the non-medical treatment. What are the things I can do that will help me if I if I don't want to go go on a medication? And a lot of people will say, I don't want to go on medications. Medications are also extremely important in this. Um, And some people need to have that medication so that they can absorb the talk therapy, for example. And I really believe in talk therapy. I think you need to talk through situations that occur to you and your perspective on it. I also think that this is a family-centered disease, and I think people need to speak to the family. The doctor needs to speak to the family about what's going on. I think certain situations need to be assessed critically thought about and, and, for example, have some examples that aren't hurtful, that aren't mean, but just to let the depressed person know how you feel about that and how it's damaging your relationship. Because many, many relationships break up because one of the people in the couple has depression. And, and you know, no pun intended, but that is so sad. And there are better things that can be done. So, Uh, Anyway, we're going to go to news right now. We're going to come back and continue all this talk. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.